let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God who opens blind eyes. Thank you for the gospel that breaks down sinful lives and transforms and renews. And thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And then, Lord, thank you for the transformative power of your word, its authority, its accuracy, and its flawlessness. And thank you so much for the wonderful study of the account of the life of our Lord Jesus that we've been enjoying in Matthew. May we benefit from these few minutes now as we close out our service uh, thinking about our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that I ask this. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated and grab your Bibles. And if you like to fill in the blanks on the notes, the listening guide, do that. Grab that. Get it ready. We... uh, have been enjoying going through the book of Matthew. And I have to tell you that as we end up in the end of chapter 22, and I invite you to turn to Matthew 22, um, where we are closing out with this last few verses that is just a most remarkable moment in the life of our Lord Jesus. Now, when I planned this, I thought it would be at the end of the sermon when we would have communion And so please forgive me for so dramatically shifting gears from the Lord's table to this picture on the screen. But I want you to understand a concept um, that we have. Um, I think we're going to get a picture. There it is. Um, you, You need to have a mindset of this passage. Now, when I was a kid, I did not like cartoons at all. Um, I like things like The Rifleman things like that, but I didn't have a TV and I didn't see too many cartoons, but one cartoon that I really liked was this one. This is Roadrunner and Coyote. Do you remember this? And do you remember the concept of Roadrunner and Coyote? Remember, a Roadrunner is a desert bird that runs. I don't think it's even capable of flying. Somebody needs to tell me. I didn't look that up. Zelia, you can look that up and tell me later. But... (laughs) Roadrunners are, are a desert bird that runs, and coyotes are coyotes, and they try to eat roadrunners for supper. And the concept of this whole cartoon, it's what kept coming to my mind as I was wrapping up Matthew chapter 22. And you'll recall that way back on the Sermon of the Mount, several years ago when we started into Matthew, I often equated the Pharisees with coyotes slinking around, sneaking, trying to destroy, trying to undermine, trying to kill Jesus even early on in his ministry. In Roadrunner and Coyote, what happens is, the concept that makes it funny is that Coyote is continually laying traps for Roadrunner. And Coyote thinks he's got, and he he goes to immense lengths to try to come up with these very complicated traps. They're kind of Rube Goldberg type plans where it's very complicated what he's trying to do. And inevitably what happens, it comes back and it gets him instead of Roadrunner. And Roadrunner beep beeps and off he goes. That's enough of that. And our attention to scripture. We have these Pharisees, these coyotes who are slinking around and, and they are trying very much to destroy and consume the ministry of our Lord Jesus. 
You recall that we're coming off of that great incident where our Lord cleared the temple of the money changers. They were so enraged by this that they confronted him really to kill him. Our Lord then tells three parables in a row. We've been through that. They, in response, recoil back from these really almost caustic parables where he's in their face with them, confronting them of the reality of who they are and the reality of who he is. They want nothing to do with it. They understand that the stories are all about them and that they're condemned in the stories. They refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah. As a result, then, they go back and they gather behind closed doors and they come right back and they then follow the three stories with three questions. We've dealt with the three questions, and at the end of the three questions, we're in our text now where they've, where they've just asked Jesus three questions, each one designed to humiliate, to, to undermine, and even get him arrested, at least for heresy, if not tax evasion, to at least embarrass him for his position as the resurrection and the life by asking him that nonsense question about the woman with seven husbands, then who in the resurrection shall be her husband? There surely cannot be a resurrection, because look at the bizarre scenario that you would come up with and every time the Lord answers back and and I take it we don't know for sure Mark and Luke's parallel account of this passage talks about our Lord being at the temple teaching the crowds and that they very much were paying attention and enjoying Matthew holds on to the reality that the Pharisees are present we're looking down at Matthew chapter 22 verse 41 and with the Pharisees present and Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the chronology of the timeline here is that they have just finished this sequence of three questions. They are still gathered there, and our Lord says, Oh, by the way, I have a question for you. It is a most remarkable text, and let's read it, and then let's try to benefit from it in the few minutes that we have. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, there's two parts to it, what do you think about the Christ? Now remember that the word Christ is a Greek translation for the word Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? See, there's two parts to the question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, oh, that's easy. I think that's what they're thinking. It doesn't say that in the text. That is such an elementary question. Everybody knows, and they give the answer, and it is correct. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, I suspect that if you were reading on your Through the Bible program and you got to the end of chapter 22, that you would read this and you would say to yourself, that's pretty interesting, but you would just kind of keep on reading because it's a little bit hard to really understand exactly what just happened there. Let's look to the notes and let's move right along with our, our message here. The first thing I want you to understand is that this is a fascinating and a, it is the final exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. I want you to get that in your head. This is it. Remember that our Lord is somewhere between 48 and 72 hours away from the cross. 
We don't know exactly where in the week this is. There's a little bit of disagreement among Bible students whether this is Tuesday or Wednesday. And, and so here's our Lord heading to the cross. He's been dealing with these wily coyotes all along. They've been getting caught in their own questions. And now he turns to them and says, I have a question for you. And he asks them this strange question. What about the Christ? Whose son is he? And it's important to recognize that this is it. Because at the end, you're going to realize the kick. Listen. This is it. This is the final opportunity for people who had the privilege of standing before the Messiah in the flesh face to face. And they rejected him right there, even this final time. Well, the first thing we see in our outline today is that, number one, we have a strategic question. We have a strategic question. Our Lord knows exactly what kind of question he's asking him. And it is strategic because it's a setup. Okay? It is a setup in that they think it's an easy question. Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. But what you need to understand, number two, is that it's a simplistic answer. That is a correct answer, but it's only part of the answer, and it's relatively simplistic. You need to know that the son of David was widely understood by the people of this day that they would have clearly understood and expected that Messiah was coming from the line of David. We'll not take time to look up these verses. You might find them interesting, but way back with the Davidic covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 7, I want you to know there what it says. It's a promise to David when God is establishing his throne, he promises to him that he will have a son who will sit on the throne of David And it's a forever kingdom. It reminds you of of Handel's Messiah. Remember the forever kingdom message we had not too long ago? Forever and ever. Hallelujah. It's It's the forever kingdom. And they know the history of Israel very well. They know all about David. They know that he had a son named Solomon. They know that Solomon had a a sin problem. They know that he had some sons. He knows that the sons were divided. He knows that they know that civil war started then, that the kingdom was divided. They know that there was a dispersion. They know that there was uh, a breakdown and that Nebuchadnezzar came and swept them all away. uh, They know the history and they know that that forever kingdom has not yet been established. And they know completely, this audience, you need to know that the audience that Jesus is speaking to completely understood that Messiah would be from the line of David. There are other passages that speak to that, even... Uh, even Micah 5 too, even part of the Christmas story, you know, um, from the town of David, you know, a savior will be born and out of David. And what's he talking about? He's talking about um, genetically the DNA, the, the offspring of springing from the loins of David, a little King James lingo there for you. It's like, out of David, his, as a descendant, would come Messiah. And so everybody understood that when Messiah comes, he will be of the line and lineage of David. That's why when Matthew and Luke put together the genealogies in the beginning of the birth story of our Lord, that they are careful to show that Jesus comes from the line of David, all right, in the genealogy, so that he's qualified, he's credentialed, because they know that that's what's going to happen. What you need to understand here, though, then, is that Jesus doesn't stop with the front part of the question. The front part of the question is, okay, of the Messiah, of Christ, whose son will he be? Oh, he'll be David's son. We know that. And they could rattle off all these scriptures. 
pointing to the son of David being Messiah, somebody of his line and lineage. Then he says to them, okay, I've got another part of this question. How then is it then that David in the spirit, the idea there, okay, the idea there is that under the guidance or control or inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's the same idea in that word there of, remember in the book of Revelation where it says that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he received the revelation of Christ. It's the same word. It's the idea that, that he was, David was in the spirit, controlled by the spirit, under the inspiration of the spirit, guided by the spirit. He didn't just make this up. He said it according to the spirit of God. That David said in the spirit, he calls him Lord. And then look at verse 44. He, he quotes Psalm 110. It's number three. It's a messianic passage. It's a messianic passage that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. It's Psalm 110 verse one. Now, when we say a messianic passage, you need to know, okay, messianic Messiah. You need to know that the Old Testament is flooded with these forward looking indicators of who Messiah would be and how we would know he came and that he would come. And so there's passages of scripture that are in detail, really a, a forward look about our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most familiar to you would be Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. But then he sends, right, this tender one brings him by his stripes you were healed like a lamb being led away to the slaughter it's all about the lord jesus christ and our iniquities will be laid upon him it's all about the lord jesus so that is a messianic prophecy isaiah 53 is messianic it is about the messiah and so in like manner here as our lord is speaking to the pharisees recognize that they would have known these verses by heart they would have had them memorized. And they would have totally, and in fact, there's no indication in the passage at all that they argue back. Everyone in the audience this day recognized that Jesus is quoting a Psalm of David. They, they did not dispute that. They knew that David wrote it. And they loved David. They knew what he wrote. And they knew that it was messianic. And before we turn there, because I want you to turn there, I want you to put your eyes down on verse 44, because I want to show you something. So in this messianic passage, you need to understand that Jesus is quoting it. But number four, to us, it's a little bit like a cryptic word play. It's like a riddle. It's almost like a word riddle. It's almost a play on words because Lord sounds just like Lord to us. And you say, of course, Pastor Van. Okay. Now, I don't really have the answer to this. I, I, I'm not 100% sure why it happened. I noticed in the New American Standard that... They did not change the words. I'm going to show you from Psalm 110 in a minute. But I want you to just look at verse 44 as our Lord, Matthew records our Lord quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, okay, and I want you to notice capital L, little O-R-D, said to my Lord, capital L, little O-R-D. Just keep that in mind. Sit at my, says, so the Lord says to my Lord, and David's writing, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, now let's go to Psalm 110 and let's hear this psalm the way that his audience that day would have understood it. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm and our Lord, and Matthew records our Lord quoting Psalm 110 verse 1 almost word for word here. Okay, 
Now I want to show you that what the, where the cryptic or hidden word play comes in a little bit for us. Your Bible probably notates the heading, a Psalm of David, and that would have not have been disputed by his audience. And then what they would have heard was, look at your, look at your, let your eyes go to 1101, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, huh, says to my Lord, capital L, little O, little R, little D, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you need to understand and remember that the names of God all spring from his character. And this was the most holy and sacred name for God. It was Yahweh, uh, Jehovah. It was the idea of he is a holy God. Now they would shrink that down by leaving out letters and they come up with this idea of Yahweh, but they didn't even like to say it. The idea was that God is so holy that I should not even say his holiest name coming across my filthy lips. And, and so when Jesus is quoting Matthew, in Matthew, when Jesus is quoting They understood, the audience understood that he was saying, the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, the Holy God, the head of the Trinity, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, this most sacred name for God, says to my Lord, little O-R-D, that's Adonai, that's a title for sovereignty, but it was also completely understood by the audience as a reference to Messiah, This is a messianic psalm, and they would have understood that the second Lord in this passage was a reference in lowercase letters, meaning Adonai, and it was a reference to Messiah. So David then says, Lord, capital, that's Yahweh, little little lowercase, capital L, that's Adonai, the sovereign one, and the my in there, that was David writing about my Lord says to my Lord, he's bringing himself under Messiah under Adonai. He's my Lord. All right. You can kind of begin to see now where Jesus is going with this. If he's your son, how could it be your Lord? All right. And so let me just read what I said in my notes. It was understood that David was referring to Messiah. Okay. Under my, David was referring to himself. It was understood that David was referring to Messiah and was referencing him as his Lord. The one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that David calls Lord is a reference to the Messiah. Okay, kind of got that? It's a little bit technical. We're back in Matthew chapter 22 because the word flow is the same. And then we see the response. But what I think is happening here is what I call number five, an apologetic moment. It's our Lord kind of presenting a defense of his messiahship. He's trying to communicate to them that they need to understand that not only does Messiah come from the loins or lineage of David, but he is also the son of the most high God. All right, look what he says. So it was seen that as the, and Jesus was regularly called the son of David. Now, you need to understand, it doesn't kind of impact us so much, but in Matthew chapter 20, for example, you don't have to turn there, Jesus casts out demons out of the demoniac there, story of the demoniac, he casts them out. He calls him son of David. Chapter 21, when he comes in on Palm Sunday to Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday, and he comes riding into Jerusalem on the colt, and 
they're laying down the palm branches and throwing down their coats in the streets. What were they crying out? They were calling him son of David, son of David, son of David. Remember why, what the Pharisees did in response to that? They went ballistic because they completely understood that the audience in calling him son of David was was a phrase for Messiah. It was the same thing. You must be the Messiah, the one that we long for, the one that they hoped would overthrow Rome, the one that would deliver them and establish the forever kingdom. And, and they called him the son of David. And what did Jesus do? He received it. He accepted it. And the Pharisees go up to him and say, tell him to stop. Tell him to stop. Don't let him call you son of David. Why? What's the big deal with son of David? He is my great, 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 great grandfather. What difference does it make? No, because that was a phrase understood to communicate that he's Messiah. And so our Lord, looking at the disciples here in this moment, he's recognizing that this is talking about Messiah. And notice what he says about him. Letter A, he speaks to Messiah's authority. So Yahweh looks at Adonai and says, come sit here at my side. The first thing you need to see is that that is a position of authority to sit at my right hand. To sit at the right hand of the Father is a position of authority. Sit at my right hand. That's authority. That's speaking of Messiah's authority. Secondly, letter B, I want you to see uh, that it's also a statement of equality. It's a statement of equality in the mind of the common Israelite that day. They would have understood that the person at the right hand has a position relatively equal to the one on the throne. It's a statement of Messiah's equality or oneness. Remember Jesus and John said, I and my father are one. Oh, they, they, went, they went nuts. They, when, when the Pharisees heard Jesus say things like that, remember they grind their teeth, they spit on the ground, they pull their hair out. I mean, I'm kind of making that up, but they just went nuts. They come up with murder plots. It's blasphemy. And ultimately, that's why they thought they put him on the cross, was blasphemy. And they don't even know it's only about 48 hours away. His authority, his equality with God. Notice then that funny phrase, until I put your enemies under your feet. It means that he would be a conquering king, this Adonai. That's a a statement of invincibility. A statement of invincibility. It's It's a word picture from... The Eastern Kingdoms, it's referenced in Joshua chapter 10. I've been saying the wrong passage all morning, something like Joshua 2014. There is no such thing. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't say it, especially from the pulpit, all right? In Joshua chapter 10, there's a story. And remember, Joshua had, had captured five rogue kings. And they were kings of city-states. They were wicked men in the conquest of the land. And there's a picture there that's stated, and he takes those kings and he lays them out on the ground. So here you go from being the king of your city-state, and you're a pretty big, important guy in your circle, and you are now lying in the dirt in front of General Joshua. And not only that, Joshua then walks over, and he takes his foot, and he stands on his neck. It means... You have been conquered. It means that you are in the dirt and I'm your king and I rule over you with all authority. And I'm, I imagine that Joshua didn't hold back all of his weight. And then he steps back after he puts his 
foot on their neck and presses down their neck as they lie on the ground, he steps back and he tells his men, take their heads off. And he kills them. That's the word picture that the audience would have completely understood. That this is a picture of a conquering king that is completely invincible. And I'm telling you, the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus' point was at this one. Jesus doesn't say it out loud. But how could Jesus have demonstrated his Messiahship more clearly than with his omnipotence throughout his earthly ministry? They had been slinking around the outskirts of the crowd when a little boy's lunch fed thousands of people and they watched it happen. They had seen crazy people convulsing and screaming and wailing and cutting themselves with stones and living in tombs. And they had watched Jesus walk up to them and heal them instantly. And they had argued with Jesus when alongside a road was a man born blind who was in his 35th year or whatever. And Jesus spits on the ground, puts some mud on his eyes and heals him. They had seen dramatic and plenty illustration of his omnipotence. There was no doubt. How could Jesus have done more as they stood from a distance and watched him say, roll back the stone, but Lord, he's been dead for three days. He stinketh, a little more King James lingo there. He stinketh, roll back the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And they knew that it happened. And he conquered... What else could Jesus do? They weren't with him, but I'm sure they heard the story about him speaking one word, shalom, and the storm and the rain and the wind and the sea immediately calm. What more could Jesus do to prove to them that he was God in the flesh? They refused, they refused, they refused to admit it or to see it. In his omniscience, hey, Two blocks over and a block down, there's a couple colts there next to their mare. Go get them for me, I have need of them. And if their master comes out on the porch and yells at you, tell them that Jesus hath need of them. I think that is a statement of his omniscience. It's just one illustration that pops in my mind right now. His all-knowingness, his great power, his authority, his authority, his equality with God, his invincibility. He was indeed Messiah. Now notice their response. Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If you guys are so all fired smart, tell me something. How can he be his son and his Lord? And the obvious answer is they have to say, not only is he a son of David, but he is the son of God. And they knew that if they answered that they were talking about Jesus, they knew they would have had to say, well, then you're the son of God. They refused to say, you're the son of God. It's all unspoken, but that's what's happening. And notice the epic silence. I use the word epic like a teenager. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And they just experienced, they did not know it, but they just experienced their final opportunity to dialogue with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, in the flesh, in person, and they squandered it. And they were silent. I got nothing to say. And they, like 
defeated coyote on Roadrunner cartoon put their tail between their legs and their head is spinning with dizziness and they slink away to lick their wounds and figure out another day how they're going to catch Roadrunner. Well, they don't. He gives himself to them. Interesting, isn't it? They refused to say that he was the Messiah. And it was right there in front of them. So do you believe it? Will you say it? Why, as I've been asking throughout this entire series, would you ever be embarrassed of this Lord Jesus? He is so remarkable. Romans 10, 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul may be thinking about the silence of the Pharisees and the obvious nature of his Messiahship right in front of them, that he's the son of David and he's the son of God right in front of them. And Roman Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, remember, that if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? Have you come to a place where you recognize this wonderful Lord Jesus as the sovereign one and the Lord? We probably could do another whole message on what it means to call him our Lord now and surrender to him. Are you willing to confess with your mouth or, as Paul said in Romans 1.16, are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, Jews and Gentiles alike. Will you say it? Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. He's the Messiah. There he is. Listen. Just like the Pharisees had no idea that that was the last dialogue, conversation, exchange that they would ever have with Jesus, you never know when you're going to have your last opportunity to admit that he's the Lord. So if you're saving it for your deathbed, it's a bad plan. If you're saving it because you haven't quite got it all figured out, you better quit, keep thinking. But I call on you to submit and surrender to the Authority of the Word of God. Jesus, in his apologetic forum there, proves his own Messiahship by turning to the Scripture and showing them that he's the Son of God. Son of David and Son of God, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that he is Lord to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Will you stand and close in prayer with me, please? Let's bow our heads. Will you ask yourself in conclusion today, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? The idea there is admitting, admitting that you know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and then taking it beyond admission to surrender, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is who he says he is. Surrendering your life for your salvation to him. Will you do that right now if you've never done that? You would say something like this, Father, I admit today that Jesus is the Christ and I know I'm a sinner and I come before him and I believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for freedom from my sin and forgiveness of my sin. 
you confess before the Lord in the privacy of your own heart right now. Father, thank you for this most remarkable few verses where Matthew captured this exchange with these difficult, difficult, critical people and how they were silenced and how our Lord masterfully showed them who he was. Father, continue to show us and reveal yourself to us. Thank you for the record, this accurate, flawless word that we have. Help us to bow humbly before it, to receive it, and that it points us to Christ, our Redeemer, the one whose blood washes away all sin and puts us in a position where we are free from condemnation once and for all. As we stand before you, O holy God, accomplish your purposes, I pray, through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.